but I think the, I think the last thing uh, is probably the that notion is like beyond where does your food come from? It's who does your food come from? Welcome to Season 6 of Camille's Demi Hour. I am your host, Camille Broderick, and this is Nantucket's NPR station 89.5 WNCK. This is a half-hour show dedicated to the Epicurean world here on Nantucket and beyond. On the show, I interview guests who will share their inspiring and thoughtful perspectives and how they are leading the charge in the ever-changing landscape of food, wine, agriculture, and hospitality. I hope this show broadens your view of this great world we live in and helps you to engage with your community and support your neighbor. Cheers and welcome to the table. Welcome everybody to Camille's Demi Hour. Thank you for listening. I wanted to start by saying that last year I read an article that left my curiosity brewing on this particular subject ever since. It was in the New York Times by the great farm-to-table chef Dan Barber about saving our seed barons and the importance of seed diversity in our food system today. Dan Barber himself referred this man a very knowledgeable man in the seed and farming world to be on the show. Someone whose experience and work is at the source of not just what we eat, but the nutrition and health of what we eat. Our guest is Michael Mazurik, associate professor at Cornell, but also co-founder of Row 7, a seed company created with Chef Dan Barber and seedsman Matthew Goldfarb. Row 7 works in the field and kitchen alongside chefs, breeders, growers, and eaters who share the mission to reimagine food from the ground up. Welcome, Mr. Mazurek. Thank you, and it's humbling to be able to share in this in this capacity. Thank you. Well, you're so welcome. I think it's important to talk about this topic. Not many people may be aware of the lack of seed barons out there and the importance of seed cultivation and diversity. So it's a topic that I think many people may find interesting. So I, I think we should begin with, obviously, how did you become interested in your studies and, and vegetable breeding exactly? And what is vegetable breeding? I was interested in biochemistry and human health and how you can take different uh, medicines to be able to help, you know, if something's going wrong in your health, you want to correct something. And I just threw my time as an undergraduate and then even into grad school, just discovering that there's so much in plants that is what informs, derives where there, there's like a lot of great medicine in nature and eating the right foods raised the right ways can be so great for your health. Like all of the pharmaceuticals we discover, actually they're, they're not conjured out of thin air. They were something discovered in nature and plants and microbes and really start to appreciate like all of the plant chemistry that we could be consuming, we should be consuming and how that's critical to sustaining our health. And that's more and of the Eastern medicine approach to well-being. and in, Indeed, and, and also it, it overlaps in the, you know, the Western approach is when you also think about like aspirin, that's a, a, that was something discovered in plants. I was really excited about hot peppers, so the capsaicin in hot pepper, that you perceive it as spicy because it's actually binding to a receptor in your nervous system. So plants have all this interaction with our body, our anatomy, crosstalk with uh, our immune systems, our relation to how we perceive the world that is really interconnected and we've just scratched the surface on on kind of what are these active ingredients in plants and 
what does it mean to us when we consume it? And it's really complex. We're just getting started. Oh, it's so fascinating, isn't it? The, the power of plants and just at that molecular level, what they're capable of doing. I can see why you would go into this. Not everyone has maybe the brain capacity to absorb all the information. But so you, you've also been called the Willy Wonka of uh, vegetables. I love that. Ultimately, you don't genetically modify seeds, but you actually crossbreed them and take their best assets. You highlighted somebody on your Instagram. It was uh, Barbara McClintock, I believe, who talked about mm -hmm. jump, jumping genes and how that showed it's like uh, we, they have a natural inclination to be diverse and to have almost modifications and transformations in themselves to adjust. Is that something that you, you try to find the best assets of these plants and then breed them? Is that is that what your work is? Indeed, yeah. And uh, the cross-pollinations in one sense, it's not that our technique is not that different than what bees would do if you planted two flowering plants side by side. And if you do that and you save the seeds, you might you would have something uh, different the next generation. And so we're doing that with a lot more more structure and, and insight. We, we don't want to take a reductionist approach. Why is this important? Why is it critical to have that diversity? I, I, I think we should know that answer. There's different plants that do better in different environments. And there's also great diversity within. Right? And I tell you about the breeding process, all the different genetics from around the world and that have all been incorporated into what we're growing now. So there's also this great diversity within a crop. So many reasons, but the, the one I'm looking at right now is the environmental where the seasons are always different and they change during the seasons. You want to have have resilience, you need a balanced portfolio. And so diversity is what lets you do that. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, obviously, um, this is an Epicurean show, and we talk about biodynamic farming often that comes up and trying to really define how that works and what makes mm -hmm. a vine healthy and what allows it to stay in season and, and able to fight against pests and other yeah. natural foreigners, I suppose. But the big debate, though, also that you talk about is the nutritional value of seeds, of GMO mm -hmm. versus organic seeds. I think this is a very complicated topic, even just with food yeah. in general. It comes down to the seed. And so what is the difference? What is critical to know about GMO versus organic? I think the, the, one of the big differences between the, uh, a transgenic crop and a non-transgenic crop are with the, the transgenic crop, it is a very sort of top-down approach. So you have a means of control where you'll be focusing one aspect, often to enable a system that is out of whack. That's why you have to keep having these interventions. So it's like, and so you're on this treadmill that is just kind of propping up an unstable situation. So that's one of the the big challenges to look at. Another is their crops that are commonly grown with a high chemical input, uh, chemicals that are increasingly scrutinized. And we have to decide, are they going to be allowable? Do we really understand the health impacts? What about chemicals that don't naturally biodegrade in the environment? What are the long lasting things there? What do they do to our bodies? And then the other part is like the, the ownership. And so once you have a crop that is then through you know, the laboratory approach to changing its genetics, then 
usually that comes with ownership and the ownership comes with restrictions and increasingly one of the biggest concerns i run into is when you have uh, a group claiming ownership over the right to replant your seeds the right to uh, let them cross pollinate you know there's uh, there's a lot of seeds that are grown where people are waiving some of their basic rights as humans on the globe and people that are claiming rights over elements from different cultures. Is this, so, what, is this when you yeah. refer to the utility patents? Yep, the utility patents is one of the big, the big aspects. And so I think I avoid the, the transgenic, the GMO crop, the approach because... I, it's just a reductionist approach where you can own, you're limited by your own creativity and knowledge. Plants have never been limited by our right. creativity and knowledge. Right. The pests that keep evolving to attack our plants are not limited by our knowledge so far. So for me, that's the, the principle of why I go this more open route. And the more like, I, I can work with things that we have yet to understand through plant breeding. It's really powerful that way. If you were just listening, you are hearing the voice of Michael Mazurek. He is a plant breeder, associate professor at Cornell and co-founder of Row 7, an amazing seed company. And we were just talking about the real difference between GMO versus organic and how it limits, I think, the exploration of plant growth and potential even medicinal purposes. If you have these GMO seeds, they're limited in their almost DNA capacity, right? And so it's almost as if you have a painting, right? And you only have four colors to use when you could use a spectrum of blending those colors and using all different types of colors and creating something completely different. I, I guess as you, you have more material to create, Indeed. And another um, great way to look at it is thinking about in terms of what we know or don't know, like, you know, when penicillin came out, great drugs saved a lot of people's lives. We're now understanding how it interacts with our microbiome in our gut. And so I think we, as we evolve our capacities to understand, we're understanding the systems are more complex than we understood. And the, the silver bullet things have their limitations, too. One thing about the article that I read in the New York Times, uh, Dan Barber had mentioned, well, he did, a, he did a great job laying out the history of the seed evolution in our country and how seeds have actually been manipulated over time to withstand chemicals, actually, <clears throat> instead of in sa in sacrificing flavor and nutrition, which leads to mm -hmm. the more controversial topic of who actually owns seed companies now? Do you do you wanna wanna share some of that information? <laughs> yeah, there's a transition from like seed being something that was either stewarded by experts within communities, you know, uh, not a formal experts that I look at today, and then it slowly became more proprietary, more owned. One of the big steps was like the F1 hybrid, where the the two parents, it's the secret sauce to making the hybrid and so you now have something the that has to be repurchased every year and that was one of the big starts for companies to be able to get into that um the seed space in proprietary ways so they um, would they would hybrid plants and create a pepper that wasn't as spicy for example but they were the only ones who quote unquote were able to do that and so they would monopolize that market and that was kind of the beginning of profiting from something like that indeed yeah and then as you get 
plants that, you know, if you, if you have an herbicide and then to help it be used, you'd want to have the whole package. You don't have the whole kit available. And so you want to have, you know, the herbicide, the instructions, and then if you could make the crop actually resistant to the herbicide, you just spray over the top and your plant would survive that. You sell more of your herbicide, you sell more of the, the seed that's partnered with that, and you can have utility patent protection around that also to, you know, protect others from competing in that space. And I think and that's when you started to see a lot of chemical companies purchasing seed companies. And 20 years ago or so, we saw a great reduction in the amount of regional seed companies, more local seed companies started going away as they were purchased. And what you ended up with is all of those crops that they were, those seeds that they were providing to farmers that had either found they worked really well for them or they had developed a business or reputation on growing something great. They had to like start all over where they had um, encountered a planned obsolescence in the food system. If all of our seed is something that is bred by one group, owned, grown in a different part of the world, imported back into the U.S. and distributed from that one central thing, you can have a a mammoth system of huge industrially efficiently supply, but also be so vulnerable in so many ways to being able to feed yourself and your community because you're reliant on all those things across the globe that we're learning can be really fragile. Now, like there will be some organic lettuce seed that you might buy. Uh, You might be growing the crop from your farmer down the road, but it comes from, (laughs) so the distributor buys it from a Dutch company that patented the Egyptian diversity and that seed, they sell to the distributor from their production farm in China. So, uh, you know, I don't want to blow up that <laughs> right now. There's enough going on, but I think it's, 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 it's going to be like, no, well, would you like to see who grows our seed? We'd love to tell you who grows our seed and tell you where and how and why it's important that the seed is that you have this fair trade community building side to it. So, um, well, it doesn't make sense. At the end of the day, it doesn't make sense for your community. It doesn't make sense economically, right? It's kind of like the fish problem in Alaska, how half the fish goes to China and then it comes back and then we buy it. it I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Seeds are going the same. It's yeah. because someone found, uh, someone found the lowest bidder. Yeah, exactly. It comes down to that, unfortunately. So, but back to your note, you said that there's fewer smaller family-owned seed companies. I think one of the stats in the article was 50 years ago, a thousand small family-owned seed businesses existed throughout the U.S. But by 2009, there are fewer than a hundred, and now four international chemical pharmaceutical companies own more than 60 percent of the seed supply. But there, there's also hope, right? And there's empowerment, and there are people with great cultural knowledge. All the heirlooms we've realized are there, and we're still just rediscovering. That means there's people in communities that have that that knowledge. They've had that knowledge in their community, in their family, for hundreds of years. And so we have the opportunity to value that, to be able to embrace that, to be able to receive these seeds that 
we can grow in our garden and we can save the seeds from it and replant it. Uh, and if our neighbor's crop fails, we could share the seeds from them and back and forth. So there's solutions in their hands, in their garden. It's encouraging people to value that and asking, well, how, where do we go from here? Well, let's talk yeah. about what you're doing at uh, Row 7. So how did you meet Dan Barber and the creation of the of the squash, yeah. your yeah. your favorite vegetable, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from Citizen Kane, the, the rosebud moment, my first food uh, was, a, was a butternut squash. I was invited to, to meet with Dan with other plant breeders as he was trying to look into exploring this, you know, kind of how he could connect with seeds and like use that to extend the, the farm to table he was working on at the time. And I think that was for me, we just we had this this moment where we both like accidentally blew each other's minds. I think where he was showing me like this is what we do with the squash to try to get the most flavor, and it was seeing what they were doing at, to get the most flavor out of out of crops. And I was realizing like we hadn't been thinking about that is how we've been selecting crops. So there's there's techniques to make things delicious or celebrate the deliciousness if they're not hide it to bring it out accentuate it he describes his experience at the time just realizing that there's choices that he had the opportunity to have a voice in how the produce he received like how it was well how it was what were its characteristics is all the crops we have any plant you grow in your garden anything you purchase from a market that has been a series of very intentional choices, and you haven't necessarily been able to add your voice. Your perspective, your community uh, hasn't necessarily been able to add a voice. So we're excited to add our voices together, but we need to open this up. And so Row 7 gives people the opportunity to be much more engaged and active in the diversity we could be eating and giving people the chance to find what they would want, what they would choose. So what were you focusing on without flavor? Just maybe sustainability for the for the plant itself? So I was working on the aesthetic. I wasn't working on the the qualities underlying that. And right. so it was a big thing the experience for me is working with Dan. He he kind of set me free in my context to be able to work on what I loved about the vegetables I was growing. Well, what else is interesting is that the f more flavorful, perhaps the more nutritional in some plants and vegetables. So you're hearing Michael Mazurek. He is associate professor at Cornell. He's a plant breeder and co-founder of Row 7 Seed Company with Dan Barber. We were just talking about how your connection with Dan Barber and how that partnership was ignited. And one thing to clarify is that Dan Barber owns a restaurant called Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is not only an amazing farm-to-table restaurant, it's on a historic property, old Rockefeller property, I believe, um, but it has a huge agricultural center where he is growing these vegetables and was able to actually interact with you and do this sort of test growing, correct? Yes, yep. there was quite a bit of, of that going on and also uh, other farms. In, yeah. the, in the region. Yeah, he's a real voice and beacon for, for the food world. So Row 7, let's let's talk a little bit about that before we end the show and exactly what you're doing now and yeah. what makes your, your company different than other seed companies. A, a big thing, the, the biggest challenge a plant breeder would, would get is to be told to make something better but not different, to change it without changing it, that you have to, you're going to make something new and better and something that's going to solve 
you know, pick your current challenge that you think is important to change in the food system. It's, it's change will look different. And so one of the great things we can do is like working with chefs, they can be these ambassadors, these translators, these champions of new foods and new ingredients and show people how to use it. And so we have a great capacity to uh, make change together that way. You work with chefs all over the world, from even Thomas Keller to uh, chefs in Copenhagen. So your network is just, it's incredible. And there's the, the chance also to be engaged like where, where you are. Uh, in your kitchen. And we release things at the experimental stage. They're not finished yet. There's decisions still yet to be made. And so we can share this with growers, with gardeners. So it's an invitation to uh, also just work directly with us from where, where you are. We work a lot to have really great tech support and customer service and the questions. And I'm one of the, the people that's you know, answering the questions directly or indirectly to make sure that we're helping people to be successful and helping people to explore the crops and see. And is also reaching out to look at, connect with other university plant breeders, independent plant breeders, and give them some opportunities to share some of the things that they're really excited about. And so there'll be, you'll be seeing a lot more voices, a lot more crops from a lot more diverse areas kind of uh, coming in soon. Well, I guess that parallels the concept of how the seed diversity is important. And at every level, there's within this food system, there's opportunity for diversity in the usage and how it's grown and these other ways. So is there any one lasting message you want to put out there about buying seeds, growing seeds, and just what's important? You actually are, you do pro bono work for this project, really. I mean, you're here to 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 pass on this information and it's sort of like a library that you really want to I think leave leave behind. I mean, is that your mission? The the library but also just something that'll contribute to change in the the food system that my my children will benefit from your children and those the future generations will benefit from. And so in that so I'm looking forward generationally into the impact we can leave. I'm a plant breeder 20 years ago. I wouldn't even have told you, I, it, I wasn't exposed to it. But so in that, it's not just the people that are uh, working on it now. We have thousands of years of history of, of approaching plant breeding from different ways, just when we were saving, saving seeds from the best thousands of years ago to much more recent times, something where we could trace it in a genealogy. And where was the seed grown, the generation before it came to you? And then what were the people uh, that it, it came from? Uh, you can have a much richer appreciation of where your food comes from to understand who it came from. Well, I hope we continue to be stewards of, of, this, of this message and to appreciate, I think, more than anything, a little seed. So I'm glad that the plant breeder is um, maybe will be a more common term in the future. So I really thank you for being on the show and uh, really appreciate your time because I'm sure you'd rather be out in the out in the fields. <laughs> or in a I'm microscope. also always <laughs> eager to talk seeds. Always eager to talk seeds. Thank you for the, the chance to talk. Thank you. Thank All you right. so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yep. Bye. 
Thank you all for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour, and I am your host, Camille Broderick. Tune in every weekend on Saturdays and Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 89.5 WNCK.